Let me turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at verses 14 through 22. We finally arrived at this final letter to the seven first century churches that are located in Asia Minor. And although the situations in, in each of those churches or each of these churches was in many ways unique to their time and location, the contents of each letter have proved to be relevant to every church in every age. This wasn't just meant for the original audience. It's meant for you and I. It's meant for us to apply to ourselves. Even though the context varies in each place, and there's aspects of the letter to Philadelphia that we need to hear. There's aspects of this letter to Laodicea that we need to hear as well. So last week, we did consider a church the church in Philadelphia, that received no condemnation from Christ. It was only encouraged. It was only built up and strengthened. Right? It was, there was no rebuke of anything. That doesn't mean they were perfect, as we said, but it means that what Christ wanted to do was honor them for their, uh, the, their obedience to him. This week, what we consider is a church that really receives no commendation, from him. Jesus has nothing good to say about them. There's only warning and rebuke and exhortation here. A church, even though he has, he's filled with rebuke for them in this passage, he is speaking to a church. He's speaking to his church. And he has not removed their lampstand at this point. In the vision that we see in chapter 1, we see Jesus standing in the midst of these seven lampstands, and they're represented by these churches. Laodicea is one of those lampstands. He hasn't removed it entirely, but we'll see here that he's on the verge of doing so. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper, he opens with this challenge in the introduction. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there. We think about heaven, we think about all the descriptions of heaven, we think about our own enjoyment of heaven, and, and we think about all of these physical realities, all of these joys that we experience in life. Does Christ ever enter into our picture? Does fellowship with Christ, unhindered by sin, does does that delight you? It's understandable, right, that our affections can wax hot and wane cold. We are fickle human beings, but a sustained indifference to Jesus Christ points to a much deeper problem than simply fluctuating emotions. It must mean that we are looking to something other than him for our satisfaction. So that when we don't find him, because we're not looking for him, we're unsatisfied. 
Lukewarm believers are content with mere external success and a Christless existence. Or Christ rarely enters into our thoughts, rarely enters into the picture. So before we read this passage and consider its warning to us, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is powerful and effective, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it can penetrate down to our bones and even divide the bone from the marrow that would have its full effect in us this morning, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, that we would be comforted by the truth of the gospel that we also find here. Lord, ultimately, we want to worship and honor you, and we want to understand your word as you have revealed it to us. So help us to be attentive. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are softened to respond in obedience to the truth that you've given us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the Laodicea was located <clears throat> along um, the same main highway that all of these other churches have been located. It's what we've called the postal route, probably, where uh, messengers would have traveled along this main highway uh, visiting the, the primary villages. So Laodicea is located along that highway. That's also, in addition, um, there's another important road that travels in and, and, and ends in Laodicea. So it was really a, a central place strategically located for trade. And the archaeological evidence shows that it was a very wealthy city. Um, like Philadelphia, they also experienced earthquakes. Um, but what we saw last week in Philadelphia, when they were devastated by an earthquake in AD 17, um, they received aid. Rome actually offered to give them aid to rebuild their structures and to rebuild their city, and, and they took that aid happily. 
Well, when, when that same kind of earthquake devastated Laodicea, they were in a position to turn Rome's offer to help down. They didn't need their help. They refused the offer to, to receive aid from Rome because they were wealthy enough to take care of themselves. And I think they, they prided themselves on that. They had no trouble at all rebuilding their city structures, which included banks, commercial buildings, and medical facilities. Uh, they were known for their, uh, their knowledge of ophthalmology. In fact, you'll see some of that as we consider the later verses in this letter. Much of it is a reference to uh, what the city was known for. Um, so we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But they were wealthy, they were well-educated, and they were proud of all that they had accomplished. As we have found to be the case with the other letters, the opening verse is a description about the Son of Man, which is relevant to the church in Laodicea. Um, and if we were in the church as this letter was being read for the first time, put yourself in this position. You're in a wealthy context. You're all present. You're rejoicing and singing, and now you're ready to hear a letter that's being read to you from the pastor that's been given to them directly from the Son of Man, directly from Jesus. It's words for you. Think about the confidence they would have had as they hear the opening line, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You're thinking, that's right, faithful and true. That, that describes us. That defines who we are. All right, but the description, as we'll see, of faithful and true witness is a contrast. It's given to contrast their false witness as a church of the believers in Laodicea. They will think highly of themselves, but in fact, they don't realize they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their testimony about themselves is entirely inaccurate. And so they were wholly unprepared for Christ's assessment of them that follows. But we're reminded here that these are the words of the Amen, the one who speaks the truth one who is truth, links him to the God of truth that's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. The only other time the word amen is used as a name for God, it's in Isaiah 65. And here, Jesus is applying that title to himself. Once again, we see the, the uh, recognition of, of the equality between the Father and the Son. So Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Now, that is a little bit more challenging, but you have to go back to the opening here. Revelation 1, verse 5, where we read that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. It's, it's a reference, as some of the other surrounding language here, faithful witness, it's a reference to his being the firstborn from the dead, who has ushered us into this new creation. Right? He's the beginning of this new creation, the beginning that that began with his resurrection. And you see some of that same language in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 15 and 17, where we read, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So there, verse 15 ends with a reference to Jesus' resurrection. And then you read in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Just as, as Christ has ushered us into that new creation, we've become united to him, and we then enjoy the blessings and the benefits of that new creation. So Jesus' evaluation of believers in Laodicea is that despite what they think of themselves, they have yet to overcome their most fundamental problem, which is the human condition. And we'll see verses 15 through 17, if you're following your outline, the human condition. Something of a, a blight upon their reputation was that they had this inadequate water supply. A very wealthy city, and yet they, they could not find a way of providing themselves with a stable water supply. They, there was no cool stream nearby. Instead, they depended upon water that had to be uh, brought in through pipes from, a, from quite a distance away, from, from hot springs that were a distance away. And, and by the time they got to the city, they're lukewarm. Right? So this is where the language is, is coming from. Uh, they don't have a cool stream to get cold water, and they don't have access to, to really hot water. It's, it's nothing but lukewarm water that's really hard to use, right, and, and really disgusting to drink. That's the condition of, of the city. Poitras says by, Vern Poitras, he comments, by contrast, the neighboring town of Hierapolis had medicinal hot springs, so waters which, which they would have thought as uh, having medicinal qualities, healing properties. And then the other neighbor, Colossae, was supplied by a cold mountain stream, so they're neighbored by people who have access to, to good water. And so Christ is urging the church here to be refreshing or cold or medicinally healing like the hot springs rather than like the Laodicean water supply. And with as much frustration as they would have felt with their own water supply, they now recognize their position before Christ. We read in, in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The first question I was thinking when I read that was, what are lukewarm works? But if you read closely, it's, it's actually not the right question, right? It's not the works that are lukewarm. It's the people who are lukewarm. Jesus says nothing about the works themselves other than the fact that he knows them. He starts with, I know your works, and then he doesn't mention their works again. He doesn't respond to them regarding their works, but the manner in which they performed them. For all we know, they might have had tremendous deeds that were credited to them maybe even having a deep impact upon the culture through their works. Christ's rebuke wasn't for their works or their lack of works, but it was for the manner in which they performed their work. It was the indifference with which they did their work. The congregation was not cold and callous, neither were they feverishly engaged. They were simply going through the motions with an eye toward visible results. And how do I know that they're just looking on the outward appearance, just looking at visible results? Well, we see in verse 17, 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. He says, look at me. Look at my wallet. I've got plenty. I'm prosperous. Very clearly, I'm doing the right things. It's obvious. Anyone looking at me would know. And yet, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were focused upon outward deeds and not inward transformation because they were rich and prosperous, and they said that they were without need. So just as they denied aid from Rome to rebuild their city after the earthquake, their attitude is denying that they were in any need or help, any need of help from the Holy Spirit. They looked down upon others with pride in their physical and spiritual prosperity. We, still some, or we see something similar in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 8, where Ephraim was guilty of the same kind of presumptuous attitude where Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. It's, it's a direct correlation between their physical prosperity and the thought that the only reason why they're prosperous is because God is having favor upon them, right? Because God is, is pleased with them. Therefore, they are, they are in this position that they're in. They have so much wealth because they're doing everything right. And like many in the church today, they assumed that their physical affluence was the direct result of their spiritual influence. That they are having a spiritual influence upon God. If they want more, they could just become more excited. But they're content. They're content with the wealth that they have. And so they become indifferent towards God. They thought that the Lord was blessing them for all the good that they were doing, but far from being filled with satisfying joy in their work, Laodicea's narcissistic arrogance has filled Jesus with disgust. That's not a description you find very often. Rather than rewarding them for their exemplary lives, he was literally ready to vomit them out of his mouth, to spew them from his mouth. Their lukewarm demeanor didn't simply stir up the anger of the Lord. They were thoroughly nauseating to him. And in reality, the Laodicean church was the very opposite of what they assumed. Rather than being rich, and prosperous, and without need, they were, in fact, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What's the connection today? You know, I think as we've gone out and, and talked to college students about Christianity, one of the, the first challenges we face is usually to convince them that they're, they're not okay. Uh, there's this religious indifference that has sort of become the norm in our culture. Everyone kind of just be- let everyone believe what they want to believe. Leave everyone, especially their religion, to themselves. Just keep it personal. 
it's offensive even to argue with someone about their religious convictions. And maybe conviction is too strong of a word. Maybe we should call them idle speculations. And they're even indifferent in those speculations. And the challenge here, because this isn't a letter that's written to the local university in Laodicea. This is a letter written to the church. When the level of spiritual apathy begins to infect the attitude of the church, you can be certain that Christ's assessment of us is not a glowing one. What would that kind of apathy look like today? I think it would look like Bibles that collect dust Monday through Saturday. It would look like empty prayer meetings. It would look like infrequently attended worship services that are filled with lukewarm believers singing half-hearted praise to a God they assume they know. And so at the root of so much indifference for the things of God is a satisfaction with a shallow faith. If we are content to be naive in our knowledge and immature in our practice, in all likelihood, we have become a disgrace to our Lord. And we don't need to sugarcoat that because Jesus certainly doesn't in this passage. Instead of being eager to rejoice over us, he may be on the brink of spewing us out of his mouth. And I think we should be careful to not too quickly relieve ourselves of that assessment. To think, well, that's not our church. That's not me. That's that church down the road. That's my former church. But that's not this church. How could it be? And yet, the rest of this letter, Jesus does hold out grace. It's not just condemnation and, and, and kick the church to the curb. He offers the divine remedy in verses 18 through 21. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is he not slow in bringing about his just judgment of a wayward church? It's because he is offering time to repent. Why is he not quickly departing entirely, removing his glory from their sanctuary? Because he's giving every opportunity for his people to repent. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus offers to sell them the remedy. So here's the, we'll get to that idea of selling in a moment. But think about the three things he, get, he lists here. Although they had wealth, they would not truly become rich until they found in Christ the gold that is refined by fire. They must come to Christ to receive that. 
Secondly, although the city was skilled in the production of, of garments, one of the factories would have been a, a garment-making factory where they were fond of making uh, glossy or using glossy black wool for the elites to wear. They, but they would never be capable of covering the shame of their nakedness until they received the white garments from Christ. You see something similar later on in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So these white garments that they're to be clothed with come from Christ. It's, it's the imputed righteousness that we talked about this morning in Sunday school. This idea of our justification, we are justified because we have received the imputed righteousness of Christ like a white garment that covers us, that cloaks us. It's only that righteousness that can remove our shame and make us acceptable before God, before a righteous and holy God. Thirdly, although one of the more prominent facilities in the city was devoted to the production of eye salve, no one would be able to see their desperate need for the Savior unless Christ healed their blinded eyes. They needed to come to him to receive eyes to see. And so the wealth of professing believers is tied to the commerce of the city. And as we've seen in, in previous cities, um, that commerce would have been wrapped up with trade guilds where each guild in their own little, um, you know, circle of of commerce had their own gods that they worshiped. And and idolatry was, was, was just wrapped up with the commerce of the city, with the economy. And so in effect, Jesus is reminding them who actually supplies their deepest needs. Instead of going to the marketplace, they should be going to Jesus. That's the fundamental point from that, that verse. But the challenge is he tells them to buy. Right? I counsel you to buy from me. But that, that doesn't sound right. They're impoverished. They're poor. How can they buy anything? How could Jesus tell them to do something that they were utterly incapable of doing? The only answer is Isaiah 55, verse 1. That they didn't need money to purchase what they truly needed. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. When you come to Jesus, when you come to the right place for your satisfaction, you don't have the resources you need. He has to supply everything. You're entirely dependent upon him. And so don't get tripped up on this, rec- this uh, counsel to buy from him. He's not telling them to pull out their wallets. He's saying, come to me. Because everything that you're spending your money on, everything that you've invested in is worthless apart from me. 
Augustus Toplater got it right. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. He goes on to say, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 19, Jesus reproves and disciplines those he loves. He is is just like a father who wants the best for his children. So in response to the grace that they had received from Christ, his saints were to respond with zeal and repentance. And apparently... As we've seen from the description, they're struggling to do either. They're struggling to be zealous and to repent. Rather than maintaining a zeal for the kingdom, these disciples had grown weary and lackluster. Rather than being eager to repent, they were filled with pride and self-sufficiency. And so as they focused upon their own agenda, their zeal for Christ began to fade away. And then content with their level of maturity, they no longer felt the need to repent. And it seems that this had gone on for so long that they didn't even notice that Jesus was no longer present among them. And so they hear this faint knocking in the background. But it was just another one of the annoying distractions in the background of a very self-centered life, a Christless existence that they had grown to uh, accustomed to and so verse 20 we read behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come into him and eat with him and he with me first this verse is is not meant as an evangelistic text to be read before an invitation to receive jesus into your heart that's oftentimes how this verse is used Jesus isn't knocking at the door of every heart, asking them to let him come in. He is writing to his church. And more specifically, he's writing to professing believers who have shut Jesus out of their lives. And so their indifference and their worldliness have have crowded Jesus out. The knock, therefore, is a warning. It's to say, if you hear, if you hear my voice, if you hear my knock, you, you must open the door. You must renew fellowship with me. I must be restored to you. It's an offer to return, to, to, to come back into fellowship and communion with his people. So Jesus keeps knocking. That's the, the language here. It's, it's a, an active knocking on the door over and over again. He is calling too. It says they'll hear his voice. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So he's knocking and calling and he's continuing to do so. The language is, is probably an allusion to the Song of Solomon. When Solomon is calling to his hesitant bride to open the door in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, it's this picture of intimacy and genuine fellowship that is held out to those whose zeal is restored, to those who become zealous and, and repent 
to them, they will be reunited with the bridegroom to enjoy intimacy again. Jesus is, is knocking is a call to repent and to renew a relationship that would result in this restored communion with him. This is why sometimes when we take the Lord's Supper, I refer to it as a covenant renewal ceremony. We're renewing our covenant fellowship with our Lord. And so we enjoy that privilege every week. Why? Because we remain in this body of flesh. We remain in this fallen world. We, were, we continue to struggle. We continue to stumble and fall. And we need to be restored into a right communion with our Savior. Rather than periodically responding to an altar call, you're given a weekly privilege of restoring and renewing your covenant relationship with Jesus. That's why we take the Lord's Supper very seriously. But not only that, Jesus promises his followers that they would sit on thrones judging with him. In verse 21, those who conquer... The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So the conquerors will sit on Christ's throne with him in the same way that he conquered and sat with his father on his throne. So we already know that this cannot be a reference to the final conquering and to a millennial reign that occurs after Christ's return because Christ has not enjoyed that, es that eschatological victory yet. He hasn't enjoyed that last day's reign yet. He is reigning now at the right hand of the Father. And those who are in Christ when they die are reigning with him. That is the promise that is referred to here. The language of his conquering is, is not future, but it's a past conquering. So this is the victory that he achieved in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's throne in heaven. It's a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, but that reign is taking place right now and will be concluded upon his return. Thus, all who persevere through this gospel age enjoy that heavenly reign with him. And we see that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. In fact, they shall reign forever and ever, he promises. So zealous believers, contrary to those lukewarm believers who are content with an external success and a Christless existence, zealous believers seek to receive from Christ. They seek to commune with Christ and they seek to reign with Christ. And those who have ears to hear must hear. Verse 22. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You have an opportunity to respond to this warning, to respond to, respond to Jesus knocking. Our song of response is, come ye sinners. And I asked Mark to conclude with this because of this line. Come ye needy, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings us nigh. Every grace that brings us near to Jesus. We can come to him without money. Without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
We thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder, this letter that is a challenge to your church. It's a challenge to our church. To many of us individually, we need to respond. We need to take this warning to heart. May we not just be convicted and leave it there, but respond in faith and seeking to be restored to a right fellowship with you. May we come to you as needy sinners and find in you our all in all. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.